Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Derek with the message. How many of you are familiar with the name Christopher Reeve? If I say Christopher Reeve, many of you will know who that is. Some of you are like, I don't know who that is. Uh, it, hindsight, I should have got a picture and put it up on the screen. I can't do that for you because it's too late. Uh, but he was, he was an actor. That'll be right on the, you'll be like right in the, you should turn around and like look at all the people that are watching online. Uh, Christopher Reeve got famous mostly uh, by uh, his role as Superman. And in 1995, Christopher Reeve uh, had like a horse accident where he was thrown from a horse and he became paralyzed from the neck down. And so at this point, uh, paralyzed from the neck down, um, and, and he ended up confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life and a ventilator, so he couldn't breathe on his own. Uh, and you would think when this happens, that's the end of Christopher Reeve, he actually ended up directing a movie two years later from a wheelchair and a ventilator. He, he ended up uh, making some appearances in uh, a TV show that was based on the Superman series called Smallville. Some of you will know that. Um, and, and perhaps what he was most famous for after his accident was uh, donating heavily and leading the, the Christopher Reeve Foundation, whose main uh, source of research was around uh, spinal cord injury. And some of you will, are familiar with this. And he could have had the end of his life, this is the end of anything functional, and I will just die quietly, but that's not what happened. And when he was asked why, here's what he said. He said, once you choose hope, anything's possible. Once you choose hope, anything's possible. I mean, hope is a powerful thing, is it not? It's a very powerful thing. Hope has this ability to cause people to continue on in spite of circumstances that would say you should stop. Hope has this ability to cause you to persist and persevere in the face of just extraordinary odds. It's so important and so powerful that the absence of hope is actually a warning sign for suicide. That a hopelessness is a warning sign for suicide. It's really, really powerful. I saw a Barna study recently, actually this past week, uh, that, that surveyed uh, Americans from 13 up, and it was Christians, it was uh, other faiths, it was people who had no faith. And in the survey, hope was one of the most, uh, two most important things people were looking for out of spirituality. The other one being peace. But people in general, whether they're Christians or not, know that hope is important. Everyone understands that hope is important. That there's something powerful in having a belief for something in the future that's going to be better. That it's really essential. In fact, modern psychology knows it's important. They've done some work around hope. Charles Snyder, some of you know that name? Does anybody know that name? Only if you're psychology people. Everybody else says, I could have just made that up. Charles, <laughs> Charles Snyder got, uh, uh, published a theory called hope theory. And if you boil hope theory down, hope theory requires three things. It requires a goal, it requires pathways to the goal, 
And then it requires enough motivation to take the pathways. And if you can have these three things, modern psychology says you can have hope. If you have those three things. If you take away any motivation to achieve the pathways, you lose hope. If you take away pathways, you lose hope. If you don't have a goal, you lose hope. But if you have all three, hope theory would say that you can have hope. Everybody, everybody understands that hope is important. But here's the thing. If you think about the world around us, those of you who like scroll social media incessantly, I mean, it's probably not very many of you, but you know, the handful of you that do. You scroll social media and you see all the things that are wrong with the world. There's war all over the place, right? There's war all around the world. There's all kinds of ideas. There's, there's political things. There's votes to kick people out of Congress. There's all kinds of stuff happening. And you look at the world around us, and if you apply hope theory, we're struggling on three fronts, are we not? The first front that we're struggling on is the fact that we can't even get a whole society on the same page as to what the goal of society is. Have you noticed this? We can't, get, we can't be on the same page about what the goal of society is. The second thing that we can't do is, even if we have a goal, we struggle to have pathways by which we could actually accomplish the goal. And because we don't have pathways, we feel powerless, which leads to a lack of motivation and a lack of power. How many of you have felt these things? I think a lot of us have felt those things. And what's the result of those things? You look at all the statistics. Suicide rate is increasing in the United States. The addiction rate is increasing in the United States. Overdose deaths are increasing in the United States. We're not going the right direction. And it would seem that we have a crisis of hope. Is there anything that people can hold on to to get the hope that we all desperately need? We know that it's essential. That if we're hopeless, that leads to suicide, but it seems like there's not much to hope for. We began this series last week, and I, uh, this thing rocks a lot. Um, we began this series last week called For the Sake of the Lost, and I apologized up front, and then nobody knew why I was apologizing, because I started our Advent series a week early. And, and last week we talked about... During this season of Advent, we look back and we remember that Jesus has come. We remember that Jesus has come while we look forward to when he will come again. And that this is a tension that we live in the, in, the, in between times. And what I told you last week is the reason Jesus came was for the sake of the lost. And when he left, he left this body of people, not just us, the people in Erie too, not just those two groups. But he left us to continue the ministry that he started. That we would be a people for the sake of the lost, for the sake of those who are far from. The ministry of Jesus that we continue is this ministry of hope. That we're actually a people of hope. And it's not just hope that gets us through our own stuff. It's not just hope for ourselves. It's not just hope for our holy huddle. But it's actually intended to be hope to be given away. That the world would find hope because we were around. 
But the hope Jesus offers is not from inside yourself where it gets tossed around by circumstances, where, uh, you know, it's dependent upon your ability to muster up motivation and, you know, a little bit of willpower and we'll have and, and find the right pathways and if we get the right goal. The hope Jesus offers is stable and it's steady and it's something that you can build a life on. And so I'm calling today's message a hope you can count on. Let's pray, and then we're going to turn uh, to the book of Luke. So would you pray with me? Lord, I do just welcome you into this space, and Lord, we're so grateful for your presence. We're so grateful, Lord, that you are near. And so, Lord, I ask that you would come and that you would speak And God, in places where we have forgotten what hope is, I pray that you would fill this room with hope. But I pray that you would touch those who feel despair, that you would touch those who begin to feel hopeless. And by your spirit, that you would bring us to life. Lord, would you put power on this message in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to look at Luke chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 2. Um, and this is right after the, uh, the narrative of Jesus' birth. So we're going to pick up in uh, verse 25. It's right after the narrative of Jesus' birth. And, you know, it's the one that, uh, that um, oh gosh, now I can't remember the name of it. Huh? Peanuts, that's the one. Charlie Brown, that was the word I was looking for. <laughs> the rest of you who are like, you're like, you didn't know that one. It's the one that got famous on Charlie Brown, but it was famous before that because it was in the Bible and Charlie Brown was newer. But anyway, um, after that whole birth narrative of Jesus that we read every single Christmas Eve here, uh, Jesus' parents take him to the temple uh, to perform the, the, the um, practices, the purification rites that are required. And so we're going to pick up in verse 25 of chapter 2, and here's what we read. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought, the, uh, brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the customs of the law required... Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. We're introduced to this man, Simeon. And Simeon is this man who has hope. And he has the hope that all of Israel is supposed to have. He's a man of hope. And it's written plainly here, but we tend to not see what the hope of Israel actually is because we don't know what we're looking for. So I want to point it out because it's really, really important. Look again at verse 25 and 26. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. 
He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's important. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That's also important. These two phrases are important because they point to the hope of Israel in the Old Testament. But God had called Israel to be this people who would represent him. And they, they, he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, and he took them through the desert, and, and he parted the Red Sea, and he saved them from the Pharaoh, and he led them through the wilderness with, with manna, and on and on and on. He ends up, they end up in the promised land, and he takes care of them, and he blesses them. But when they get to the promised land, they start oppressing people, and they start doing to other people what was done to them. And so God brings judgment on the nation of Israel. And they become exiled. They get carried out from the land. They become captive. They become enslaved again. But God's word to them is not, well, it's, it's judgment at the end. God's word to them is a word of redemption. It says, I will bring you back. And the hope that you have is I will rule in Israel. The hope that Israel was holding out for was there would come a Messiah one day, a king, a ruler, who would begin the rule and reign of God in Israel. So they're in, they're in these captive nations. They come back. They rebuild the temple. And yet there's something missing. Because when they get back to the land, they're still not even a sovereign group of people. They're ruled by oppressive forces over and over and over again. They keep being ruled by people. And everybody is longing for this promise that God had made that there would come a Messiah that there would come someone who would bring consolation to Israel, who would restore our fortunes, who would bring the rule and reign of God. And this was the Old Testament hope. That's what all of Israel was longing for, was that God would become king in their land again. But that wasn't the case. So when Simeon is introduced in the story, this is the hope he's holding on to. That there will one day come a Messiah. And this Messiah will begin the rule and reign of God in Israel. And so this idea of hope in the Bible is different than the way that we think of hope. We think of hope more along the lines of like wishing or dreaming. I was driving uh, Uber on Thursday. And I drove this lady to Johnstown. And... We get somewhere to about Ebensburg, and she starts just complaining about the, the way of the world. It's, I don't know how this world has gotten so bad, and I don't know how people will ever raise kids in this world. It's so awful, and it's, and it's just a downhill slide, and I can't believe how bad it's getting. And so I listened to her for a little while, and then I said, well, what gives you hope? She sat there for a second. She goes, that's a good question. I'm going to steal that one freely give it to you. <laughs> I didn't make it up. She goes, well, let me think about it for a minute. And she goes, I think what gives me hope is this hope that I want to own a farm. I want to own a farm. Nobody has told her she's going to own a farm. She's living with her mother, but she has this dream of one day owning a farm. That's how we think of hope. We think of hope as I have this dream one day that this thing might happen, but it's very dependent on her ability to make enough money to buy a farm or have somebody give her a farm. It's very dependent on her ability to manage a farm. It's very dependent on a lot of things about her. 
This is how we think about hope a lot of times. It's more about a dream. It's more about a wish. But that's not how the Bible talks about hope. In the Bible, hope is a certain future based on historical facts. Hope is a certain future. It's a guaranteed outcome. You can take it to the bank. The hope that Simeon and all of Israel, for that matter, was holding on to was not just a wish or a dream. Simeon didn't go up on a mountaintop and try to get an experience and go, well, let me dream about what could be. Simeon was holding on to this promise that God had given to the nation of Israel. And he knew that that promise was good because God had done things in the past. He didn't dream about pathways toward a goal and think about the ways that he could muster up some motivation and some willpower. He held on to this future that God said was coming. This is biblical hope. Biblical hope is something that you can count on, something you can take to the bank. And the effect of biblical hope is that it enables you to persist in light of things that don't look like they're going the right direction. Biblical hope actually allows you to persist and persevere, the things that the Bible calls you to do anyway. The difference between biblical hope and hope from the hope theory is that biblical hope is not dependent on your ability to pick the right goal, to find the pathways, and to muster up willpower. Biblical hope is not even based on you at all. If you want stable hope, You need hope that's based on something stable outside of yourself. Have you ever tried to find hope in relationships with other people? That's one of the most frustrating things in the world. And I'm married to my best friend. But she's not God. No relationship that you've ever been in with another person is God. Those people are prone to failure just like you are. So you can't put hope in another person. The only place that you can find actual hope that's stable is in something outside of yourself that's stable. And biblical hope gives us that. Biblical hope is stable because it's not tied to you and me. It's not dependent on my my changing moods, my uh, high levels of energy followed by my low levels of energy. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing? My hope is based on my energy levels. Some of us put our hope on that, though, don't we? My ability to accomplish this thing. Have you ever thought about how terrible it would be to, like, base your hope on your ability to be moral? If I'll just do the right things, it'll be okay. I have hope there, right? Except for the fact that every last one of us, except for the liars, are prone to sin. (laughs) We all find ourselves in this weird, uh, twisted space where we know what we should do, and then we find ourselves not doing the things we should do, don't we? Can you think about trying to base your hope on yourself? It's terrible. The only place that you can put hope is in something stable outside of yourself, and that is God. It's the only place that you can put hope. Of course, the question that should follow, for those of you paying attention, is are God's promises trustworthy? And before we give like the pat answer, yes, of course they are, we're in church, you're supposed to say that, right? Are God's promises trustworthy? Can we actually trust that God, what God says is going to happen? 
One of the things that people outside of Christian faith would say is, isn't it all just pie in the sky when you die by and by? Isn't that really what it is? You guys are just sort of making some fruitful future that like is based in nothing. And I think that's a valid thing we have to consider. Is that what we're actually doing? Are we just dreaming about some reality in the future that's not actually tied to anything? One of the things, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, how many of you have read, this is not a shaming thing, how many of you have read all the way through the Old Testament? When you read through the Old Testament, one of the stunning things that you will find is how often Israel tells the story again. Have you noticed this? Like, you're like, if, if you haven't done this, it's, it's an entertaining thing to do. Start at the beginning and you start reading and you get to a certain point in the story, lots of times, and they just sort of like recap what's already happened. You're like, wait, hold on. You already told me this. We should just keep going. And then they go a little bit further and they recap everything that's already happened. And over and over and over and over, they keep telling the story again and again and again and again and again. Sort of like Hell's Kitchen, right? You, like, you start a new episode and they first spend the first two minutes telling you what's already happened. It's like, just get to the show. Hulu is great about that. Skip the intro if you're binge watching. But over and over and over in the Old Testament, they retell the story. What's interesting is the festivals and the feasts that get commanded in the Old Testament, part of those is to retell the story. If you participate in a Jewish Passover Seder, what you're doing is retelling the story. Every year you tell the story again and again and again. And when they retell the story, I don't know if you've noticed this, when they retell the story, they're not like, we just had a really great leader, he was very charismatic, and we just followed him, and it was great. And we were like smart people, and you know, we were really great with our hands, we were great builders, and our, our earning potential was phenomenal. And so we, as the nation of Israel, we were successful largely because of our in in own intellect. That's not what it says. In essence, it says, the only reason we survived is because God did it. Again and again and again and again and again. I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of the ways God has moved. In my life, in this church, I need to be reminded again and again and again because I don't know if you're like me, but I tend to forget the ways that God has already done things. In the history of Israel, what they do is they tell the story again and again and again because they know that we're prone to forget. There's this, this basis for the hope is all the things that God has done in the past. So when God says, I will send a Messiah and I will inaugurate my rule and reign in Israel, they go, well, when we tell the story, we've watched God rescue us from slavery. We've watched God protect us as we went through the Red Sea on dry land. We've watched God do this and this and this. So when God says, I will bring a Messiah, they're like, of course he will. It's just, you could take it to the bank because it's based on some history. As many of you know I love The Office. I know some of you, we have connected. And it feeds my soul that other people love The Office like I do. There's this episode in The Office I'm going to tell the story. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Michael Scott is the manager of the Scranton branch of the Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, right? And so Michael Scott, if you don't know him, he's not good at anything other than messing everything up. The whole time, that's basically all he does. Well, so season six, there's this episode 
called Scott's Tots. You know this episode? <laughs> so he, uh, when this group of like underprivileged at-risk youth were in third grade, he went to the school and what he did is he promised that if they would just power through and graduate high school, he would pay for all their college tuition. As you can imagine, this created hope in all of those kids. And so they get to their senior year and they're graduating. And of course, Michael's plan was, well, in the nine years in the middle, I'll just become a millionaire and then I'll be able to afford it. Those of you who know who Michael Scott is, you know that it's impossible. Other than a scratch-off ticket, he's not going to become a millionaire. So he gets to the senior year, and he's now in this awkward position of having to go to these graduating seniors and say, I can't pay for your college tuition. And so he offers them laptop batteries. <laughs> and then the one kid like goes, that's messed up. And he's like, I'll, I'll write you a check for your books. I'll buy your books, but don't cash it till in the future, right? My point here is, if you know this show, there's no backstory that would make you think that the promise that was made was a good one. There's nothing that Michael Scott has ever done that you can base and say, oh, you're going to pay for my tuition. Sure, that's a good promise. And so there's this pie-in-the-sky hope that's not attached to anything, but when we look at God... If all we ever did was claim, God will make the future amazing, God will take care of all the things, that would be the same as trusting Michael Scott to pay for your college tuition. But the hope, the reason that we have any weight to the hope of the promises that God gives us is because we can look back and say, he's done it before. He'll do it again. The promises that he makes are good. Biblical hope is a future that is certain because it's based on the historical actions of the one who promised. Simeon could have hope that God would actually send a Messiah because he had past history to say God has done it, he will do it again. I can trust that. And when Jesus showed up, Simeon could praise God because he had seen the promised Messiah. But there's something that I want you guys to see. There's a hope here for all of us in what Simeon says. Look at verse 29 says, Sovereign Lord, this is Simeon, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. In verse 30, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Now, he's not talking about finally Jesus is here so that you can believe in him and go to heaven when you die. That's not a Jewish idea. What he's saying is the salvation that you are bringing is you are going to liberate us from these oppressive forces. This is the Messiah that is going to inaugurate the kingdom in this place. The rule and reign of God. This is the hope that we've been looking for. This is what we've been waiting for. But there's something else here. Verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Much of the Jewish hope was nationalistic. It was very much based on it's us versus them. If you know the first century, there's the Jewish people and then there's everybody else. So there's the Jews and they called everybody else the Gentiles. And much of the Jewish hope was it's us to the exclusion of the Gentiles. Keep everybody else out. It's our God. We are going to be the powerful ones. Our God is going to ensure that. This was the Jewish hope. It's largely mixed up in the coming rule of God to the exclusion of everyone. 
But Simeon offers this prophetic statement. And it's important to understand the hope that we have. He offers this prophetic statement that says, a light to the Gentiles. He says, this Messiah who has come that I'm holding in my hands is not just bringing rule and reign for the nation of Israel, but the invitation is for everyone. The invitation is that this hope can be for everyone, including all of those on the outside. Most of us, I mean, I don't know all of your stories, but, so you can correct me if you want, but I would bet most of us, maybe all of us, are not actually Jewish. We would be in the Gentile camp. We are people who didn't grow up in Jewish heritage. And so this story of hope for Israel is of no value to us unless God extends the bounds beyond what Israel thought. It's of no value to us. Jesus is of no value to us unless the hope gets extended beyond the boundaries of Israel to include other people. There's no value for us. And the good news is that he has done that. That that actually is the hope. From the very beginning, Abraham, when God called Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. He didn't say just your family. He said, I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And so when Simeon gets to this point, he makes this prophetic statement. What he's saying is, Jesus is the invitation to the whole world to come back into a relationship with God, that God would be their God and you would be his people. That's the invitation in Jesus. It's not just the Jews, it's you, it's me, that God would rule over our lives. That that's the invitation to us. Friends, the invitation that we are offered in Jesus is that you and I can be forgiven of the ways we have separated ourselves from God. Of all the ways that we've said we don't want you to be in charge of our lives, we can be forgiven and that we can come back into a relationship with him and that we can be his people. In Jesus, we've been invited to participate in his plan to restore all creation. That we get to participate in that. And what's better is our experience of who God is gives us a unique position in order to extend the hope of Jesus to people who are looking for it. There are people who are looking for this hope theory. If I can just get the right goal and get the right pathways and I can muster up enough motivation. And we can be people who say, no, there's hope beyond yourself. That's what Jesus invites us to. And the hope that God has for us is that there will come a day when there will be no more sickness. There will come a day when there will be no more demonized people, that everybody gets set free. There will come a day when death is no longer in power. There will come a day when brokenness doesn't have to reign in your family, in your marriage, in your relationships. There will come a day. And that's the hope that God has made for us. And we can base that hope on something, can't we? We have to base it on some past activity. What can we base this hope that this day is coming? What can we base that on? Let me point to two things as I wrap this up. There are two historical facts that, that allow us to hope for this future. The first historical fact, fact that allows us to hope for this future is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus. 
that we can look back. Jesus, who came and began this process of making all things new, yes, he died for our sin, and that's a significant thing. But what is at least as significant, and I would argue more significant, is that he was raised to life after he was killed. Because what he said in that moment is, death is no longer in charge, I have defeated death. I have made payment for all of you, death has been defeated. I have been raised to new life. And Jesus says, there will come a day when you too will defeat death. And we can count on that because Jesus was raised. That in Jesus, the resurrection of the dead has begun. That's the first thing. The second historical fact that I think gives us hope. That there will come a day when all things will be made new. Is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I think it's, it's the, the second most, I mean, one of the most important things. When Jesus left, he promised his disciples that he would pour out the Holy Spirit. And so he left, and then on Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit came. And what Peter said is he said, this is what Joel was prophesying in the Old Testament when the rule and reign of God began, that the Spirit of God would be poured out on all flesh, that everyone would get to partake in the Holy Spirit. And then Paul, in Ephesians, he picks this up and he calls the Holy Spirit the down payment for what is to come. Earnest money. You ever bought a house? How many of you bought a house? You put down earnest money, it's like, I promise you I'm going to give you the rest, right? For those of you who haven't bought a house, do you put things on layaway anymore? Does anybody do that? You wish. <laughs> Most, places don't. Most places stop doing layaway, I think, because you put the down payment down and then never come back. But... But you made this down payment. God made this down payment in the Holy Spirit. And he said, hey, there's the fullness of this to come. The things that you see when the Holy Spirit comes, the things that the Holy Spirit affects, there's, this, is just the, this is just the first fruits. This is the initial taste of what the fullness of the kingdom will be. And that this means that every place where the Holy Spirit manifests himself, every place where the Holy Spirit acts, it's a foretaste. It's the earnest money. It's the down payment of the fullness of the kingdom that is to come. One of the reasons that I believe that the continued action of the Holy Spirit is not only biblical but is essential is because we need that touch to know that there's a thing coming. We need that. We need to know that God's promises are good, not just that we've read about them in the past and we have this book so we don't need God to do anything more, but we need an experience of God that says, I'm doing this thing now in first fruits that I'm going to do in fullness. It's coming. What that means is every time one person is healed, it's a signpost pointing to the day when all will be healed. Every time we see one deliverance, somebody gets set free from demons, one person, it's a signpost to the day when Satan will be completely defeated and the demonic horde will have no power over anyone. It's a signpost. It points to something. Every time we see a dead person raised, and yes, that does happen. Maybe it doesn't happen in this room, but around the world, people are raising dead people as part of the ministry of Jesus. Every time a dead person is raised, it's a signpost saying, death has been defeated. It does not have the final word. Jesus will come back and death will be completely cast down. That's the hope. 
So the act and the ministry of the Holy Spirit is the foretaste. It's the first fruits. Every time you have an experience of the Holy Spirit, it's God saying, what I'm doing now, I will do in fullness in the future. It's a critical piece of what it is to be a part of this thing called the church of Jesus Christ. The miraculous works of the Holy Spirit are ongoing testimony that the rule and reign of God have begun on the earth and God promises to make good on his future that the, the, the rule and the reign of God will come in its fullness. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the second thing that, that, that we can have a hope that's not this future on. Listen, here's the deal. We have a hope that's not based on the circumstances we see in this world. We have a hope that's not based on our ability to find a goal, find some pathways, and muster up enough willpower to make it happen. We have a hope that's not based on us. It's based on God and his ability to make good on the promises that he makes. And here's the deal. Our role is to put this into the world. The ministry of the Holy Spirit, while we love doing that stuff here, you know, we love to pray for each other and have amazing experiences, it's not primarily for here. It's primarily for out there. Because out there needs to see what we have. Out there needs to know that God is going to make good on a promise. And that's our role, that we take this out there. Until Jesus returns and we get the rest of what we have the down payment on. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed and we'll see you next time.